Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, always you can just head over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Today, during our second hour, we're doing 3D production and focusing on the idea phase. Alan Hawks, who's here on the panel, will help guide us through that. And um, don't forget, in our first hour, we handle general questions, as always. So for the production and IT-related topics, it is an excellent opportunity to get any questions that you have that have been plaguing you kind of answered by our panel of experts. By now, you should be familiar with the Mukana system where you can get your questions into the show. If not, please head over to officehours.global. You'll find all the breadcrumbs there for the path on how everything Office Hours works. Okay, all that said, it's time to dive in. Mitch, what do we have as our first question today? Thank you, Bill. First in, Tim Mann from Melbourne, Australia. Is there a way of importing tracks live project into the audio production tool Reaper. Jason, can you start us off? Um, yeah, from the import menu, um, it's actually kind of an offshoot of the sampling set, but um, as far as like a, an entire live project, I, I'm not sure unless you can specify exactly where it's coming from, but like tracks themselves, yeah, you can drag and drop or you can just use the import menu. Alex Lindsay. And just a quick reminder that Wednesdays we have a lot of folks that are using, or at least a couple that are using Reaper uh, directly. So Wednesdays are audio day and probably a good day to ask that question again if you want to get a more detailed answer. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Hoken Forrest from Stockholm, Sweden, asking, if you would broadcast a local electronic arts Madden tournament, how would you set it up and how much get a gameplay feed into your switcher? Courtney, you want to help us out? Well, I'm not sure because I've never attended a local EA Madden tournament. Uh, you know, there are uh, video game tournaments that are around. And if you're in a situation where you have to get uh, a feed from each of the players, uh, you'd want to go through a splitter of some sort and convert it to uh, uh, SDI, hopefully, and then go through a router or a switcher, uh, a higher end switcher that has SDI switching. And then that way you could switch to any of the players uh, or the main gameplay stage into your switcher, uh, if that's what you're talking about. If you're talking about just a local, if you have a local game console, the output of that, you may have to run it through a splitter if it has HDCP on it, uh, where it may prevent it from going into a switcher live. It may switch off the video if it has uh, content protection turned on. So there are some HDMI splitters out there that will strip off the HDCP, a one to two splitter, and you can do that and then run one to your monitor, local monitor, and then the other into something like uh, the ATEM Mini. Uh, and then you should be able to, once it's into the switcher, be able to get it up to the stream and stream it live for an individual player, if that's what you're talking about. Alex? Yeah, and, and it depends often on how many players you have and how many are playing against each other at any given time. I will tell you the way I've done it in the past, which is probably throwing a lot of hardware at it, but uh, you should be able to use a second ME and simply use macros uh, to simply jump between, because typically what happens is you have the gameplay and then you also have a picture-in-picture -picture of, of the player um, that you want to be able to turn on and off, but you want to have that available to you. So. You can use macros on another on one of your other MEs. Um, I wouldn't attempt to do this kind of show with less than four MEs. You're going to have graphics layers. You're going to have uh, picture in pictures. You're going to have you know the, all the bits and pieces. And you can do that with a macro because we had a, an event that was it was about ten players and it was pretty complex. What we really focused on there was um, we actually took a one ME switcher 
and applied it for every single person. <laughs> so, so we just had one, a one ME for every computer. That way we had the computers go out. We had the, the picture in picture. And the big advantage of that was that we could tweak things in between the show, I mean, in between the cuts. So someone could log into each one of those and they would know which one it was. It was all named and they would just jump in and go, oh, I'm going to move this over a little bit. I'm going to make this. And so they can make those adjustments to it. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages. Consistency is easier if you're using macros and you're only affecting one of them. Um, but there is also, um, but think about that. You're going to need, a, a, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to need at least two MEs and I would recommend four MEs uh, for that, for that to kind of manage that. But otherwise you could, what we do, what we did, which was dedicate each one. Remember the other thing that you're going to have to deal with is audio. So you have the game audio and you have to decide where the game audio is coming from. Typically that's another, you'll go in as something else, um, and, uh, or someone else and be getting some of that game audio. But if it's location based, you actually need all of their game because you're going to, you, someone may need to mix in, Oh, we're now at this person. We're watching this person. We need to mix that in. And one of the things that we had to think about when we did that is tying the mixer in the mixer scenes into the GPIO. So when you're switching, if you're switching to someone left to its own devices, it would give you the audio of the person that you were, um, it would automatically mix the audio of the person that you were doing it. And then you have all the chatter from there headsets so just remember that they're all talking to each other different teams are talking to each other and you got to decide whether you're going to broadcast that uh so you can you you'll now need to get into their um you know wire into their system um so that you can make that happen so there's a bunch of you know those are all the things that at least to think about is you've got system audio you've got comms audio you've got the person that you need to do we were using little micro um, you know, little black magic micros with eight millimeter lenses, um, on them. So that it's pretty wide angle. It's a really wide angle webcam. Um, and, uh, and so those are the, but that's the, the way that I would think about those. Those are the things you need to think about how those are going to get done. And then you can start working on the run of show. Next question from Graham Cardwell at Belfast, Northern Ireland. I'm struggling to find a replacement 75 millimeter visa mount for a 32 inch monitor. The existing bracket is recessed, so the common 75-100 mounts will not work. Any suggestions? Thank you. Jason, help us out. You bet. Um, so the traditional way to do this is with um, with a recessed bracket. So you've got a few options. You can get like a two-part like this one from Ergotron, um, where one part will slide into the other. That will certainly help. But then you need offset bolts to get it a little bit farther down. Where is it? But yeah, basically a set of spacers and then some rubber grommets should tighten that up. Uh, the ones that are right down in the bottom corner of that image. But yeah, that, that's how I would do it. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Or you can do like I do, just a 3D print one. Uh, this is my 75 millimeter uh, base amount. Uh, you can change the design. I'm not sure how the reset is interfering with the mount. This will mount, and then it has a uh, you know adjustable angle on the back, and then a place where you can uh, thread and screw in a, either a three eighths inch uh, mount of some sort or a quarter inch mount. It depends on how you're going to mount it, what kind of post you're going to mount it to. If you think it's going to mount it on a wall, that's something else. This is to 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 mount it onto a stand or uh, uh, you know a bracket that's going to hold it, a magic arm or something that's going to hold it on your desk. Uh, and hit me up on Discord. I'll send you the uh, 3D files for that if you want to try that. And you have Oh, good. I was printer. about to ask you if you found that online on one of the three nope. print sources or did you make it up? I made it myself. All right. And is willing to share it. That looks really sophisticated. Nice job. Jason, you had another thought? 
Yeah, one more thing. I, I found the recessed bolt, so th this will allow you to have tension, even if the the um, the part that you're trying to mount is farther in, and you know can stabilize it. So yeah, that's the last part. Cool. Uh, very nice. Although the only thing I always wonder about that, if I'm mounting some sort of a monitor that I don't get my screws so long that I actually go through and impinge on the actual screen. There's nothing worse than that last little torquing down and something goes crack. Anyway, good luck with the, the process, Graham. Let's get to our next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asked, Shortwave, the email app that works like Inbox by Gmail, finally has a native Android app as well as an iOS app. Is this something that will be useful? Alex, what say you? No. <laughs> no, it's not going to be useful. So, yeah, you know, like, answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting away, if you're using Gmail, use Gmail, use, use uh, Google's app on your Android. I mean, they're building that for it. They have teams that are working on that. And you're now going to go, you're going to fork that into some other, in, in some other reader. I highly recommend against it. Okay. That's actually a reasonable point of view. Courtney, your thoughts. Well, I looked at it. It, it looks like it's a, the AI power is, is has to do with summarization and filtration. So it will take your inbox and it will, uh, you know, uh, cut through. It'll it'll figure out what's spam. But Gmail already does a really good job of figuring that stuff out. If you have Gmail, it does pretty well. Uh, and it's it looks more for the corporate wonk who wants you know who has a lot of. Uh, email from uh, corporate cronies the, uh, that you have to divide and filter it and put it in separate uh, inboxes for certain projects, et cetera. And it, it will write, summarize, and prioritize and do things with your schedule and uh, block your unwanted senders. Uh, it will, you know, I don't know, do something about chat, modern chat experience, let you use Yeah, but the, I think that AI Gmail does respond. most of that too. Like, well, Gmail, does Gmail doesn't do any like AI responses or anything. Gmail does sure. great filtering. Yeah, Gmail's great for filtering. Yeah. But as far as, yeah. as summarizing and getting responses, I don't think Gmail does any of that. This is more for the for the person that has to run a corporate uh, inbox and has to deal with a lot of corporate infrastructure. But uh, so if you're doing that, you know, you might take a look at it. But not for me or Alex. All right, <laughs> definitely <So>. not. <laughs> Sounds like ready for the next question, State. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, has a question. At a local cinema house, pre-show adverts have audio that's often originating from one channel, for example, left or right or front, instead of well-balanced. How does this sort of thing happen these days? Is it just lack of attention to detail or something else? Oh, dear, this can of worms about channel assignments. Courtney, start us off. That's because the guy that runs the refreshment stand is the guy that's in charge of plugging stuff in in the projection booth. Uh, you know, he hasn't got the plug all the way in on that secondary projector. There's usually a secondary projector that's used for the pre-show stuff uh, because they don't want to burn their, the globe, uh, you know, burn the light, their expensive light lamp on the, the main projector. So they'll have a cheap projector that's, uh, you know, lower resolution, lower brightness that just plays all the pre-show uh, uh, stuff up to the trailers, you know, the, the advertisements and the uh, noom and the, you know, pre-show questions that keep people entertained because they don't have curtains that open from the screen anymore. So that'll be on a separate projector and that separate projector, probably the audio out of that second projector, they just didn't patch it in correctly. So it's hitting both amplifiers. So that's probably how that happened. Alex? 
if the uh, theater itself has 5.1, it's common that the um, the show stuff that happens beforehand is not in 5.1, it's in stereo. And the problem there is that you you have the way the speakers work behind the screen is you have a you know left right and center and so for a movie they put all the dialogue down the center track but that's the third track if they have stereo they only have left and right and so in a theater because the screen is so big if you're on one side of the i bet you i mean the question it could be what courtney said as well but the problem we have is people originate things in stereo and what happens is the people on the right side feel like the right side the right speaker is is louder than the left one the people on the left feel like the left speaker is louder because that audio needs to come down that center track and so um so if they're just getting a raw right left uh, it will, you'll, it'll feel like it's weighted to the side that you're sitting. If you're sitting right in the middle, you're probably in the phantom center, and you you probably wouldn't notice it. But on one side or the other, you would. Mitchell Hill um, had similar experiences. We worked with a local chain uh, to develop advertising that ran in the theater. Um, and by the way, Courtney, they ran it on the same Christie projectors that they were running the shows on. So it was all part of a a loop system that uh, played back that was psych- cycling everything. But anyhow. Um, you have to make friends with the person that transfers uh, your files, your ProRes or whatever files you have into the, I think, DCI files for cinema uh, projectors to use. And if they don't understand the process, then you're going to have exactly the problem that uh, Alex was mentioning, that Channel 3 is not getting the right uh, system. So once you've got it down and you have, you've made friends with the person that's uh, doing all the transfers, it's a beautiful thing. But I will tell you that as much as we uh, are worried about how big our heads are on our uh, home TVs downstairs, you haven't lived until you've seen a uh, episode of Office Hours in an IMAX theater and you see these gigantic heads, uh, <laughs> multiple stories high, talking to you. It's scary. It can be. Theaters are uh, so many levels of them with so many different kinds of systems and so much uh, sophistication and or lack of that on on site on the local side that it's hard to tell what you're going to get. That's part of the reason that I try to do most of my work in just single track mono. At least if you can make it heard, it'll get out there. But as Alex well articulated, when you've got left, right and center, all sorts of shenanigans can take place. Let's get to the next question. From John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, are third-party iPhone lenses like those from Moment and Shift Cam worth the money, or are they gimmicky? Alex. They're actually pretty good. Um, so the Moment lenses, uh, the problem right now is that the that now every time Apple comes out with a new one, the lenses are in different places, and so the whatever case you got needs to be updated. So I will say that as the Apple lenses have gotten better, the moment lenses have stood out less. But if you're looking for a certain look, like anamorphic, which will affect how the lights hit, um, if you're looking for, uh, you know, they do give it a certain feel, you still get wider angle. And there's some other lenses that you can buy um, that are macro lenses that you can zoom in on. Most of my experience has been either really cheap ones that just kind of flip on or uh, the moment lenses, which um, are a fair bit more expensive, but they do give it, there's some kind of warmth that they give going going through more glass and probably a little bit of softening uh, that that actually makes the the image quite pleasing. 
Yeah, to me, it's a split as to whether you're doing ENG style work with your phone, which means electronic news gathering. That's the kind of the traditional, I'm going out to an event and I'm going to take shots and I don't know what I'm going to run into. So I have to be flexible. That's where the on the shoulder kind of news camera style was invented. Uh, the zoom is very important because you need to change your shot constantly as you see what you face, as opposed to the other side of the business, which is EFP or electronic field production, where you're going to plan shots and execute shots. These kind of things with specific lens screw-ons to me are great for the EFP style shooting. If you know how you're going to shoot and you've got somebody who's shooting and wants a particular look shot by shot and you have time to take off one lens and put on another lens, great. Go do that. I seldom find myself in situations where people are paying for that kind of shooting. So for me, getting to know what the camera does natively without extra lenses is more important for my work that I do. But everybody's going to be different. So good luck finding the, the system and the shot that works like you do. I agree with Alex. I've heard good things about Moment and some of the other third-party lens uh, companies if that's what you're looking for. Let's go to the next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asks... When producing live shows in 16 to 9 and want to use vertical content afterwards for social and mobile, what do you consider in advance? Live shows produced in 1080, A10 Mini, but can record 4K in camera. Alex? I would highly recommend doing 4K because you're not going to have enough resolution to go the other way if you start to do pan and scan. Um, so if you want the full resolution, you do need to get You need to shoot at 4K um, or you know more if you can um, so that you have a lot of room to work. And then you have to decide, do you want to punch it right out or do you want to actually make both shows great? Um, to make both shows great, you're going to shoot the 16 by 9 the way you shoot 16 by 9. And you're not going to protect for, four, for 9 by 16. You, you know, so what people do when they when they do this is they'll protect for 16. They'll put tape on their monitor or whatever and they'll stay inside of that nine by 16 and the challenge there is is that then the the, the 16 by nine just is center weighted and it doesn't look great so allowing the allowing the 16 by 9 to be the 16 by 9 but what that means is you're going to spend more time on it in post so now what you're going to do is simply go back and forth and move that you're going to be basically building a 9 by 16 project you're going to take that 16 by 9 and put it in and then you're simply shifting and animating it back and forth and you can either do that in cuts or you can do it in, um, you know, you can you can cut back and forth where you're doing it or you just do little slow. It'll look like camera moves um, of you moving with them as they move around or move in and out of the frame. Um, so so it's, it, it's a little bit of, you know, it, it can be a fair bit of work to, to get that done. But that's the way to make both of them look good. Um, and so there's some automated features, I think, in Final Cut um, and uh, as well as a couple other. And I think Resolve has it as well. I'm not sure about Premiere that will try to do that for you. I've never found it to be better than someone doing it themselves. <laughs> it just takes a lot longer. Yeah, I think a brain behind that always helps. Uh, don't forget. This show is, the entire show is driven by your questions and the votes on those questions. So if you have any additional questions you'd like to toss into the system, slip over to Mukana and do that. And if you have a moment, take your time and vote those questions up and down. The the process here at Office Hours is that the questions that have the most votes get the most time, and we get to them sooner than the ones that have fewer votes. So make your make your wishes known. Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, has a request. Can you do some second hours like this or have quality reviewers or mixers of spatial audio like this review of Dark Side of the Moon in Dolby Atmos version on Apple Music? 
Okay, I didn't know that existed, but now that you say it exists, I must go there and watch it because I was crazy lucky as a young man to get comp tickets to see Dark Side of the Moon's Roadshow when it came to Arizona. It is one of the signature concert events of my entire life, in part because we learned later that they were scheduled one month. They had to postpone the show three months because the ASU Activity Center, which is the basketball arena, did not have enough power available to run the show. So they had to put in huge cables from Sun Devil Stadium, the football stadium, to get enough juice to run Pink Floyd's road show for there. It was pretty revelatory. Uh, Alex Lindsay, your thoughts? The hardest part was copyright. <laughs> so if we if we do, you know, the hardest part of doing second hours, doing things in after hours and maybe talking about some of these things might be possible. But the problem really we get into is that we'll get a strike or we'll get we'll get uh, flagged for playing copywritten music or more other things like that. So that's usually the challenge for us to put anything on YouTube. I got to go watch that. Let's go to the next question from JJ McKenna in San Rafael, California. JJ asked, with the added power of Zoom Cuts, Zoom, an Apple computer, and an Apple Watch, how responsive would a Zoom mute button on an Apple Watch be, and would this be accessible for a remote producer to unmute a participant? Mitchell, what are your thoughts? Boy, I mean, I've tried everything. Uh, everything from Mute Me to uh, other hardware devices, and I can tell you that anything that goes that's programmatic or globally uh, works with your uh, your Apple. It's not going to be 100% accurate uh, as to when it mutes. So I haven't done it, but I can s simply state that from experience, it's probably going to be okay, but not great. Um, it, there's nothing beats a hardware or software-based device like a sound device, excuse me, a studio technology. Alex? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, I've tried a lot of different things to do the mute, and I, I don't even have... There's nothing other than hardware mute that I trust. So um, everything else has been slightly double tapped or it gets under somebody's window or it is something that, you know, so the software muting is something that I find is not, not a particularly effective, um, even if I have to click on it with a mouse. Um, so I, I, I prefer strongly to have something in hardware that I can actually turn it down. Uh, if I was going to do it remotely, I'd have a device that's going to both, that's going to be a hardware, some kind of hardware system that's going to do that. And then it's going to also give me positive feedback that it happened. Um, so I want to see that it, you know, something that has got some kind of light and, and so on and so forth to do that. Uh, I don't know what tool does that, but that's what I would want if I'm going to try to mute someone on their side, other than just using the software mute inside of Zoom. But I definitely wouldn't have confidence in my watch. Mitch Hill? Yeah, I'm sorry. I wanted to add one more thing. I, I mean, I'm a crazy mute man. I'm a mutant. Get it? Uh, I, the, the thing that I've been playing with, uh, at least mentally, is using a Scarhoy which can talk to uh, your computer and to the Zoom app and then use an Arduino to uh, take that information and turn it into a hardware type mute. But by the time you get done doing that, you're gonna spend thousands of dollars uh, to end up with something you can't uh, depend on 100%. So Alex is right. Software is not as dependable as you might want. It might be in a casual sense, if you're doing like uh, Zoom mutes with the uh, friends and things like that for, for a broadcast program like Office Hours, uh, we all have our own hardware mutes, and that's the way we do it. Yeah, and one little thing, I've said this a few times, but the tactile nature of a hardware mute, and I always keep a couple of these around because I've gotten so used to using them, 
it's just like a piano player. Your touch is going to determine some of how this thing performs. If I just smashed it down and up, that makes so much noise that anybody could hear that. So you learn a little bit about how to just kind of finesse it down and finesse it up. And now I don't even think about it. And in doing that, I found a way to make it operate silently. So part of it is getting the hardware in place. If you really want silent muting that is completely dependable, the other thing is to work with it enough and pay attention so that your operation of it doesn't exacerbate the problem. Uh, you let the tool do its job well by using it correctly. That's kind of my two cents. Get to the next question. From Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland. Converting video signals to an ATEM Extreme HDMI with a Blackmagic bi-directional 3G converter, the video feed has black stripes on the left side. It happens with different cameras and sometimes fixes itself. Possible cause, faulty converter, or settings? Okay, so Courtney's going to start us off trying to help you. Well, you didn't say what kind of cameras you're looking at. If it's a different aspect ratio, if it's not 16 by 9 aspect ratio yeah, or frame rate, it could be the frame rate converter. Uh, I think those those mini, those Blackmagic bidirectional will do, will accept different uh, frame rates. Uh, they'll accept, uh, you know, P and PSF and 59.94 and 24 frames. So make sure they're in the same... Uh, make sure they're in the same time base, uh, you know, either either 50 hertz or 60 hertz, in other words, 59.94 or 25, uh, depending upon uh, uh, the type of camera that you're plugging in. So the, the timing is not, uh, in other words, the, uh, the scaler inside the ATEM may not be getting the right kind of signal to latch onto. So it may be being confused by the conversion that's happening in the Blackmagic bi-directional box. It depends on the camera. Make sure your camera is set to 1080p at a flavor that the uh, that the ATM likes. That way it doesn't have to do any scaling uh, input and output. Uh, and that will maybe eliminate the black bar on the left or the timing errors that you're running into. Alex. Yeah, I think it's a timing issue. And and I think that um, it's probably, I'd be curious if you do a, a non-bi-directional, if you have that converter, whether you see the same thing. But it is, I think, a, a, probably a timing issue between what the ATEM is expecting and what it's uh, what it's getting. Mitch, you have a thought? Yeah, I can confirm that it is a t indeed a timing error. I've got two of them on my HyperDeck uh, with the two HyperDeck outputs, one being the uh, the main channel, the other being the alpha and uh, they don't always lock up. The alpha channel kind of uh, drifts a little bit. So it is definitely a gen locking issue. Uh, it's not getting the same timing in both of them. And that's, what's, that's what causes it to drift. Because sometimes if you turn your ATAM on and off, it may reset your problem. And that means timing. So I'm just curious, without Blackburst generators and something bringing that in to synchronize, is there, how, do you, how do you cure that kind of thing? Do you have to put house sync in and go through the you process can't. of doing that? There's no genlocking capability. Uh, it, the input has to be genlocked to the, uh, the output. The the, what I would do is take I would the first thing I would do is is take my ATEM off automatic and set it to the the resolution that I expect that I'm going yeah. to use and the, and the frame rate. Then I would go to the camera and make sure it was set to exactly the same thing. I think it has to do with the scaler. So so I think that those are the things that I would jump into first. That makes sense. Thank you. Hopefully that helps you, Matthias. Let's get to the next question from David Brady in New York, New York. C Caleb over at DSLR Shooter. Built a pretty slick portable streaming setup built on the Rode Streamer X. What are your thoughts? 
Uh, I don't know if anybody's taken a look at that. I, 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 you know, DSLR Shooter is a is a well-respected publication. It's been around for a long time. They really help in the area of uh, news and things like that. All the people who had suddenly their kind of careers changed and they had to do not just uh, still photography but video. There was a lot of activity over there. Uh, Alex, have you explored this at all? I did look at it a little bit. It looks great. It looks like this great little pocket pocket streamer that you have there. Um, so it's it's a cool little um, uh, a cool little streamer that they that they have um, working. I I don't wouldn't want to actually use it. I mean, I think I look at it and I go, oh, that's really cool to take around. But I would still end up building a kit around an ATEM because it has more features um, from the layering perspective. Also, I want a small. I want a larger monitor. I wouldn't want to to do that there. So. Um, yeah, so I, I probably would not not use it, but I think it's a really cool, and I think probably some people would love to have something that small, that's smaller than I need it to be, in almost any environment. Um, and so um, I probably want it to be a little bit bigger, so I had a little bit more real estate to work with. It looked really cute. I know Chris Fenwick is running some of their promo video. There we go. It's a little bit on the screen now for you. So it's a very small little unit, and uh, it looks really cute. And if it works great, fabulous. Mitch Hill, do you have any experience with it? I'm just giving a thumbs up to Caleb. He does a lot of really cool things, uh, camera setups, uh, streaming uh, environments. He built the first desktop uh, Zoom room, uh, all done with stuff from Home Depot. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Very nice. All right. So investigate. Sounds like it's worth taking a look at. Let's get to the next question. From Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Alex, did you omit doing a white balance setup today or is it an intentional experiment? Oh, Alex, where are you and how much time? How many seconds did you have to set up today? Yeah, yeah no, I, I had to tear apart the kit that I had in the last couple of days because we're going to use it for Seagraph. And so I put a new camera in. I know this will sound crazy, but the new camera is a 12K that we're not using for this right now. And so and uh, I am the problem is, is that I have less control over the LUTs and color via Bluetooth than uh, and so what's happening is my light is changing. It was okay before the show. My light is changing because this is a window. There's no light there. And so my light is changing and I have less control over how to fix it um, on than I had before. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm struggling with this a little bit right now, trying to figure it out. And um, between questions, uh, we'll see if we can uh, get it. You might see me change slowly as I work through it. Um, but yeah, so I moved the Sony to the, to the, to the ring that we're using for the show. Um, and that's why we're, um, so I'm, you know, cause so it's, it takes a lot to build it and we need it. I need to hand it off very shortly after the show. So it didn't, I spent a couple hours this morning working on that. So anyway, so I, you're I not got traveling with a uh, 44 inch roll of three stop ND <laughs> in your travel kit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't figure it out. You know, Blue like Man the, the group. You know, the thing is, is that I'm, you know, the, the, I have control over white balance. It's just not getting to where I expect it to. There, I guess that's better now. But that, that white balance in my, does that look better to all of you? It's different. No, it's green. Yeah. You're still a little green. green you know, and you're so, still, yeah. And then this goes greener and then this goes better. Maybe that's better. Is the number the number of light from that left side window? Yeah, but I can, I can fix that. That's, that's the, um, uh, Let's see here. Let's see, I can go down like this. You guys can see me sort of play with Alex plays with his uh, Bluetooth controller. Let's see. So there's a better. Yeah, this is going to blow out. You can't. You can't fix that. Um, so uh, then white balance. It seems to be working you on your skin tones, but not so much on the uh, the rest of. Doesn't you. matter. Skin. Here's the here's the trick. 
Skin tones are all that matters. <laughs> so as soon as you get the skin tone done, you know, you, 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 when you get you go the skin tone, the skin tone is what you get that you get that where you're happy, and then you just go okay. And of course, I'm looking through my little Zoom thing, and and I have a little tiny window uh, to look at there, so I'm not sure. You know, it's very hard for me to figure out exactly. Does that look better than it did yeah, before? Probably. That's way better. Okay, well there you go. All right. to, yeah, and everyone got to watch it live. I'm using the little black magic uh, thing that I, I did fortunately pair in the last couple minutes before I <laughs> threw the ball over the thing. Like, I don't know how to fix this right now because the light's going to keep changing. I'm going to make sure that I have a Bluetooth control. There you go. One of the hardest shooting circumstances, you find yourself looking at something and the light's changing every <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> You know, like people always say, like uh, they'll they'll say we really want to do something where they're right next to a window, and I'm like, how about we put a big, how about we black out the window, and we put like four image eighties there, and then it looks like a window, but I can control it. <laughs> so, so I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a doubt, I'm not an outdoor shooter. I'm, a, I'm a, like, how about we get rid of all the windows? You know, so so uh, so anyway. It's particularly bad on cloudy days when clouds roll in over the sun. So, you know, well, it's, it's a weird situation because I'm in a hotel. I'm in a hotel right near the, the convention center and it's I'm actually in shadow most of the time. But it is just it just the flavor keeps changing since this morning. So it's just it's just a process. Yeah. Production practicalities. All right. We're going to move on to the next question. Don't go anywhere, Alex, because Liberty White from Atlanta, Georgia has a question. Alex, what's your mobile hotel setup today? It looks awesome. Why, thank you. It looks even better now because the, 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 the white balance is better. Um, the uh, I'm using um, I, my general kit and I posted it, I think, on I thought I posted it in Discord, but maybe I posted in, but I posted it in Twitter. Um, and uh, this is a uh, so normally I'm using a Sony FX30 um, with a uh, ATEM Mini and then I have a, a Mix Pre 3 and um, <laughs> This hotel, this hotel room is very small, but it's very close to the convention center. <laughs> That's what you get. Um, and so I have, I have a whole bunch of Pelican cases stacked up here. And then I've got this little riser made by a company called Brewcoon that, that holds up my laptop so I can kind of get it up a little bit higher. And then I have a, right today I have a 12K, a Blackmagic 12K that I, that I brought as my other camera, my second camera. So I have the 12K there with a 24 to 70 or 2.8 lens. Um, and, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, the the yesterday and Sunday or yesterday I had, I did use a light over here, but I didn't get it up this morning. Didn't get the light going this morning, but, um, but anyway, but that's, uh, that's what I got set up. Cool. All right. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is the Athenray thermal camera for Android and Athenray infrared camera. 256 by 192 IR resolution, minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit to 100, excuse me, 1112 degrees Fahrenheit temperature range, thermal imaging camera with a 40 MK thermal sensitivity, a decent buy at $300. I don't know why, but this makes me think of the person who was in trying to do shots of avalanches, something that goes from negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit to 1112 degrees Fahrenheit would be a nice cold weather camera. Courtney, what say you? Just what you need for checking the temperature of the sidewalk out in Dallas this morning. Uh, it's going to be like 112. Uh, it looks pretty interesting. It has uh, the the reason it's so clear. It has about double the resolution of most other infrared cameras, uh, forward-looking infrared FLIR cameras, and it plugs on. It's fairly small. Plugs into the USB-C port on the bottom of an Android or a iOS phone. I assume they have a lightning connector for iOS. I could be wrong. Could be its only uh, 
uh, USB-C, but it has 384 by 288 resolution, which is about double what most other infrared FLIR uh, chips do. Uh, so it gives you a lot better resolution. I, I do wish it had a, uh, a, uh, a regular sensor in there so you could superimpose the FLIR temperature information over the top of a conventional picture. And sometimes uh, those cameras have dual sensors and have the ability to overlay the FLIR data over the top of a regular uh, CMOS sensor. It has a 25 hertz frame rate, which is a little bit faster than most of the other uh, other ones. They usually do a fairly slow frame rate. Uh, yeah, see, about 8.87 hertz, about 9 hertz. And it has long time battery standby. So it, it looks like it's got a lot of good features for 300 bucks. Uh, if you're in the business of trying to do, you know, HVAC or medical situations where you want to check the blood flow in your extremities, uh, It'd be good for that or checking to see, you know, how good the insulation is on your house, how well your air conditioner is doing, et cetera. Uh, that kind of stuff. Those type of industrial applications are great. If you're troubleshooting uh, circuit boards, if you're an electronics engineer, these come in very handy to find the hot spots without having to burn your finger by touching all the components. Uh, and uh, so it has a lot of great uses and it looks like a good buy for 300 bucks. Mitch Hill. Uh, Courtney, a great answer. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it's so technical. But I do know one thing, Paul, this is a great question for us to include in our show workshop today so that we can uh, have our uh, future readers have a chance to go through quite a list of uh, technical terms. Yeah, you did that well. And that was a tough read for the question because there was a lot of statistics and degrees and Fahrenheit. And so I got good heavens, a lot of stuff in there. Well done. Let's move on to the next question. From Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York, Henry asks, trying to help a client deliver a short DCP video to a theater. I'm using Resolve, and how can I check if it's output correctly for them? Chris Fenwick. Uh, Henry, I've never actually had to do DCP, but I have good friends that have. And um, they, in their, like, you know, ramping up and learning process, they struck um, a friendship up with somebody who was projectionist at a theater that that used DCPs. And there were a lot of like, hey, dude, I'm coming by at 1 a.m. Can I need to test a file kind of thing. And um, I would recommend, you know, you just got to, you know, go into a theater and give it a go. Um, I'm sure there's smarter people than me that can figure out a way. Maybe there's some test thing. I don't know. But that's what my friend did is he, he had a friend in a theater. Yeah, authoring it can be a little... Iffy. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, if you haven't done it before, I would highly recommend using a service bureau to build a DCP. Um, you, you'll end up de delivering a, a ProRes file. They'll have they'll be able to see it and be able to measure it and make sure that it's what it needs to be. Um, this is not something I would recommend doing the first time by yourself. Um, so if you're asking, is no, you've done it before, but if you're doing even a short DCP, um, I would take it to a, it'll cost a little bit more money and not a lot of money, but it will cost some money to take it to a service bureau and have them build it for you. Um, it's just, it'll save you It'll save you a lot of headaches. You just have to decide now. Once you're there, be chatty and talk to everyone. Try to see what how they're how they're putting that stuff together. But generally, anything that's important, you want to do take this to someone who does this all the time. Um, if you're doing your own for something that's relatively casual, you can go ahead and give it a shot. But when it matters, that DCPs are complex. I mean, to do well, and you better take it. I would have, I recommend taking it to a professional. <laughs> so, Mitchell. Yeah, Alex is exactly right. You can't do it yourself. I tried. It just is a, is a miserable failure. 
uh, to get it in the right format to go into a uh, Christie system. And as I said earlier, um, I was working with a chain. And the best thing you can do is use that service bureau or the friend you've made that can do the transfer for your uh, ProRes files and go into the theater and look at it. Look at the results and compare the color and the composition. I guarantee you that no matter what you were thinking uh, in your uh, editing suite, in your beautiful studio, how it looked, it's going to look completely different once it's up on a big screen. It's an amazing transformation, especially if you do graphics. If you're doing graphics and you're flying them around, it's a whole different ball game. So make sure you see what it looks like after it's out in the theater because things can get look really, really horsey real fast. Thank you so far, everybody, for putting in your questions. We still have room for some more. And don't forget, your votes on the questions that you submit through our Mukana system also are very important always. Uh, if you want to see something come up faster, give it more upvotes. Next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, Zoom updated its terms of service, giving them the facility to train its AI against your calls, even though they say they won't. Uh, should this be a cause for alarm? Alex, what say you? Yeah, if the if, it, if this is the one that we addressed yesterday, I, you know, they've made a change. I think over the last day again to make it clearer that they're not going to do that. <laughs> so so, they're, so it, it was it was not what was in the original contract uh, or the original TOS that was over the weekend. So if you're reading the reports about it, they're wrong. <laughs> so if if you actually read the the the, the uh, actual TOS, it's talking about the fact that they they can't have it's a uh, uh, they they are taking telemetry data. That's not the the meeting data. That's not they're not taking the content. They're taking telemetry data so that they can make the show. You know, they, they, there's a lot of stuff in the back end there. But what they are saying is is that is it is an opt in for the the generative AI and all the AI training is an opt in solution there. So so they're not that was already there, and then these articles came out by people who hadn't. I don't know if they know how to read TOS. So they, you know, so, you know, um, they're not experts in this, they're writers. Um, anyway, and then, and then they, uh, and then they wrote it and then everyone got upset. And so then Zoom had to, I'm sure, I don't know what they did, but I'm sure they had a bunch of meetings and then they came up and said, really, this is what we're doing. <laughs> you know, so I think that they clarified it over the last, uh, the last day or so, and, um, it should be fine, but I don't, I don't, they definitely don't want to get into that. That would be sticky for them. Hey, never let accuracy get in the way of a really good yarn. Uh, Chris Fenwick. <laughs> Alex, I'm curious. You mentioned telemetry data. That, to me, sounds like something flying through space. What, what, what exactly are you talking about? Um, you know, if you're if you're a business user and you have a back end, you know, if you're looking at it in the back end, you can see, you know, whether people are on Wi-Fi and whether they're on, you know, like so you, it allows you to troubleshoot a lot of things that are going on um, with the with the meeting. So that's kind of something that is that's that's there, you know, like their IPs that they came in from the, you know, so there's data there that makes a difference for the meeting and it also helps you secure the meeting, um, you know, and so uh, so I think that that's that stuff is being gathered and that's what the TOS is, has there, but it's not. Not talking about the content. <laughs> it's talking about how you're connecting to the. Yeah, I would assume it would be a it'd be a really bad idea for Zoom to outright say, "Hey, we're transcribing all your private meetings, and we're trying to you know train our yeah. AI." <laughs> what, what do you think? What do you think they would do to make like in a you know a sci-fi dream world? What would they gather to make the product better? It's an interesting. Well, I mean, there's concept. there's so much. 
Well, uh, well, I mean, when you see stability and then you, you, you look at like, well, if we change the way it's compressed, it doesn't get better. Do we see, you know, more stability with lower bandwidth or do where, where do we, where do we make those cutoffs? And, you know, is Wi-Fi really affecting these things? There's a lot of things. I mean, when you get, you know, telemetry data, you know, you, there's a lot that you can tell about where your settings are and how you build it and how people enter, how people exit, are people failing? And the, and the thing is you need to see a very wide swath of that. I mean, that's my understanding of, of how I don't, you know, there's a lot of different apps that do that. Um, and so, uh, so those are, and those are pretty, pretty useful. Um, as far as generative AI, I mean, obviously like seeing a lot of stuff is makes it, makes it better at doing what it does. But I don't think that, again, that's not what Zoom's doing. That's an opt-in solution to make that solution better. It's not a, it's not part of the, the telemetry gathering. If you recall, we had, Oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Sorry, Bill. If you recall, you know, we were talking to, um, Andy, uh, several months ago, and and we were talking specifically about you know new features and how things had changed, and we brought up the whole original sound, you know, automatically switching and stuff. And it was, it was very quick, you know, he was very quick to cite a statistic about well, you know, we find that sixty three percent, blah blah blah, you know, or, you know, ninety five percent of all statistics are made up. Uh, but he, he cited a specific statistic, so obviously having data about how things get used, how things perform. I can see that. It's yeah, super important. makes a huge difference. It's why and the from all the marketing research like stuff you. I've done, one of the biggest problems is here's how you think your users will use something, and then it gets out in the field, and you find out you were totally wrong. They're using it in an entirely different way than you ever expected. And if you're going to tweak your product to satisfy them even more in the future, you have to understand what they really want to do with it. And sometimes that's not yeah. obvious. Yeah. So let, let's move on to the next question. And it's from Jack Rappel in. Uh, Breckenridge, Colorado. Uh, could a 9 to 16 content be bookended by PDF content and ASL translation as a 16 to 9 on screen content? Alex? I'm going to let Courtney jump into this first because I'm not totally clear what the question is. I, I, I thought I had an answer to it. Courtney's waiting. He's like, I, I didn't know what it meant either. Uh, Courtney, what do you I think? No, oh, I, I think I know what it means. But but uh, in other words, they've got some 16, 9 by 16 content that they want to show. So vertical or, video of some yeah, sort. 16 by 9 uh, program. And you can do what, like most of the television stations do, with people submit 9 by 16 content that they've shot on their phone for part of a news broadcast. There are a couple of things they can put at center, and then they have a... Uh, a piece of software that takes the nine by 16 splits it in half and blurs it and puts that in the two pillars on either side of it. And that makes it, that puts it in the same contrast ratio so that your monitor doesn't freak out uh, having black bars on either side. Uh, but it's distracting. And because you get that blurry rep repetition of both sides of the nine by 16 on either side, or the, or you could do like they said, take a PDF or just create a, uh, uh, a 16 by nine mortise in Photoshop, a still image with maybe a little box where you can put the nine by 16 in, and then you could put uh, information, uh, you know, about it. Uh, if you, if you know what the content is and maybe a window down to the side uh, to do your ASL, if you need to do translation or put in a trans, uh, ASL translator person in the, the corner. Uh, so if you have it prepared ahead of time, uh, if you know what's going to what's going to be presented, you can do it that way and present a PDF or even a keynote with a window cut out of it, uh, place for the nine by sixteen. 
but you probably, uh, I don't know if you want to keep the nine by 16 in the center so that people that are looking at it on their phones will can blow it up and center cut it and see the main content and get rid of the rest or if they want to maintain the, the stuff on either side. Uh, I really don't like it when they do that. I wish the phone manufacturers would just come up with a mode that says, regardless of how I'm holding my phone, always shoot 16 by nine because uh, they could easily do that. Uh, Chris Fenwick. Uh, so Jack, I think the question is, uh, you said, could you? Yeah, of course you could. You could drop the 16 by nine content in there. Then you have all this extra space. You could fill it up with all kinds. You could put the news and the weather and all kinds of stuff on the, on the left side and the right side. And uh, uh, Courtney, I'd love to know what this fancy software is that splits it up and blurs it. That sounds like an interesting piece of software. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think the question is, should you? It, it, should, should you do that? I think it's important to remember, and, and we'll just talk at HD here, 1920 by 1080 is our 16 by 9. A 1920 vertical picture, you could blow that up something like 60% or something like that and get your your uh, your wings much smaller than preserving all of it. And you probably, I'm just saying you probably don't need all of it unless somebody shot a vertical shot of a fireman running up a ladder. So maybe you do need all of that. But do you want to distract the viewer with extra stuff? Uh, and I understand ASL isn't a distraction if you need it, but do you want to distract the viewer? I think that one of the things that as an editor that I've been doing much more lately is talking producers off of cliffs. And a lot of times you just got to leave things alone. You just got to let it be. Sometimes the best way to present a vertical piece of video is just put the vertical video there. You don't have to fill the frame. Maybe all that extra stuff is more distracting than it needs to be. Black might be okay. So can you? Yes, you can. Could you? Yes, you could. Should you? That's the real question. Yeah, and that's a tougher call. I know that in breaking news situations, they often just have those punch-ups of the two wings out of blur. And that is because, you know, we've got footage in. We don't know where it's coming from. We can't really crop it or mess with it because that's against the generic news rules. You know, you're not supposed to manipulate things that are a reality-based shot. So that's the quickest way to push a button and get it out for breaking news. That doesn't mean it's the best way or the right way, but it is the simplest and easiest way to maintain um, the rules that you're supposed to be following. Courtney? Here's an interesting anecdote that I have about aspect ratio. I interviewed, uh, had the occasion to interview back in the 70s, uh, Fritz Lang, famous German cinema director, and, uh, of course, he was brought up in the 20s and 30s where there was a basically square aspect ratio. And so I asked him what he thought of the new uh, 2 3, 3 to one the CinemaScope aspect ratio, the widescreen. You know, what do they think about that? What does he think about that? And he said uh, his answer was, well, widescreen is good for two things only, love scenes and snakes. So... <laughs> Now we're into the 16 by 9 aspect ratio. So I guess we're going to have a lot of snake movies out there. <laughs> I'm not even commenting on this. I'm just saying next question. Liberty White from Atlanta, Georgia. What's the best or your favorite Amazon Echo show and why? Oh, Alex, are you watching that? I actually have a couple of I have a couple of the uh, the echoes that I've been playing with. Um, 
I actually like the littlest one <laughs> that you can ask questions for it. Um, but I also like, I like to go to one of the two extremes. So either the littlest puck or I like the, uh, the really the largest screen. I can't remember the, the name of the models of them, but there's one, I think it's seven inch or nine inch or 10 inch or whatever. It's a pretty big screen. Um, I, you know, the nice thing about those is that they're relatively easy to set up. Um, you can get two people connected, um, on a, you know, for a family. Um, they're not specifically, you know, Apple related if people have a little mixture of what they're doing. Um, and the skills are kind of fun to build um, inside. You can on the web, on Amazon's website, you can build skills that you can ask, you can build how it's going to re- respond to you based on what you say. So you can say, when you hear this, say this. And it's, it's fun. It, it creates a lot of fun for the for the family. Um, so, so those are the things. The ones in between, I kind of feel like are in between. The only other one is the larger speaker. I know my, my son has one of those and he, he likes it because he can call out music and play it. So those are the those are the ones that we've used in the past so far. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Talk about OpenAI rolls out GPT bot. Website owners can now limit GPT bot access. GPT bot is a web crawler to improve AI models. GPT bots uh, scrupulously filters out data sources that violate privacy and other policies. And there's a link there. Yeah. Alex, your thoughts. Yeah, I looked at this. Uh, so they're they're going to start crawling the web in real time. So most of all the models that we've had with ChatGPT so far have been past based. You know, they closed it up. And so and and so you're not looking at things that are related to the news or related to things that are in current uh, currently happening. So this chatbot is going to allow it to kind of get more uh, my understanding, looking at it and only the, only looking at this artist with my understanding of the cursatory view of this. And John may have a better a better view of that. But but I believe that what it does is it allows it to bring the content to real time, you know, and, and content to current um, events that are happening. Uh, now, what they are doing as they turn that crawler on is they are uh, allowing websites to actively turn it off. So they so they're identifying themselves as what they are. They can be blocked easily. So if, if, if websites don't want to be part of that, um, then they can they can make that affect themselves. So that's the that's how uh, that, that's my understanding of how the chatbot, the new chatbot and the ability to block it is is uh, happening. The next question. Punsak Dorji from Dharamshala, Indian, India. We want to live stream a debate and do a poll audience in the hall on the motion before the debate and have the graph displayed on a projector in the hall or air and another poll after the debate as to gauge the change of opinions. Any suggestions? Uh, Alex. Yeah, I think that the, the only, uh, there are a few, um, I'm trying to think of them. There's there's a couple of them, but uh, the the one that is probably the most popular for this kind of thing is Slido. Uh, it's pretty expensive to, for one use, uh, so if that if you're trying to do it over and over again, it may be a little rougher. Um, you could also use um, if you want to get a little bit more geeky about it, you could use the polling inside of uh, Zoom, and then you need to use Zoom OSC to um, go in and grab that data. So go in and find out what that setting is, and then you could build something that would do it. But for something that's going to be uh, t- uh, just a simple turnkey. Uh, you're probably looking at some kind of polling for publicly available, um, and um, but it, it'd be an interesting um, thing to work on. Uh, so definitely, you know, Makana um, has some of those features built into it. Um, it would take a little bit of work on our end to to figure that out. If you're interested, go ahead and contact me in in Discord. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, discuss the new mute button, which is a capacitance touch button, and a USB-C interface on the Audio-Technica AT2020 USB-X 
emphasis on the X compared to other USB mics, please. Mitchell, did you take a look at this, and do you have an opinion? Um, I looked at it yesterday with Paul, and I uh, looked at it uh, today once again at that uh, link that he's included. Here's the problem. As a mute button on the microphone, even if it is capacitive touch, um, it's a fail. It's going to be a huge technical fail because if you're quickly needing to do something, you got to search it out on the mic, and then you got to poke at it. And I don't think you're going to be able to just slightly touch it because just because it's a capacitance. I think you're going to be banging away on it, and it's going to interfere because it's going to be heard when you go messing around with your microphone. And it's in a bad place. It needs to be separate from the microphone. Courtney. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with Mitch, uh, especially capacitive. I hate capacitive touch controls on anything uh, because, A, you don't know where they are. This one looks like it's got a little detent somewhere if that's the mute button in the middle there uh so at least you can feel it but the problem with capacitive touch if you touch it twice it mutes and then unmutes and you don't know unless it has some type of uh hysteresis on it so that it locks out any switches for you know half a second or three seconds or so so it doesn't double click in other words and i think it may have an led that lights up to tell you uh that lights up red to tell you that it's muted so that you're going to look at it so that's good the problem with capacitive switches unless they have some type of indicator you can't tell what mode they're in just by looking at them unless they have an led or something so and the fact that you have to touch it within the uh, shock mount uh, is going to make noise too i agree next question as from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, asking, does it look too cheap in front of the client to use a U-Haul van to transport gear on a production, or is that just overthinking it? Uh, Alex, what think you? It's not overthinking it, but it's not totally necessary either. So if you're not at that place where you can do that, then then don't do it. It will look better if you have a truck that is unmarked. <laughs> like that's that completely unmarked is the one that is the one that, that makes you just look like you. This is all business, you know. If you you can then the next step from there is wrapping it. Uh, I don't. I don't. I, wrapping is actually not a bad way to gather new people to to come to your business, um, but I would. Uh, a lot of clients don't like it. Um, they just like plain box trucks to show up in or plain uh, things to show up outside. Um, so, and it also makes it much more secure. Um, advertising that you're full, you have a truck full of AV equipment is usually not something you want to park somewhere badly. Um, so, so just think about those things. Um, but otherwise, a rental truck is um, uh, it, it's it's not it's not horrible. Um, and and definitely, if you're if you're getting an unusual event, I wouldn't worry about it too much. And Mitchell. I agree 100% with Alex. There's nothing wrong with coming up with a U-Haul. And you definitely don't want a wrap on your uh, your delivery vehicle that says, hey, expensive gear in here. Make sure you steal it. Doesn't work. All right. Um, we are right on the cusp of our top of the hour and our second hour discussion today. We do have some com a couple of reminders for you. Don't forget, Office Hours is going to be live at SIGGRAPH today. We're going to L.A. and we're going to be covering the show from 4 to 6 p.m. today uh, here at Office Hours Live. Wednesday, we're coming back 1 to 3 p.m. So you'll be able to get the latest 3D graphics, immersive technology, and the future of digital production all from the place that it's kind of happening. The field team is going to be there uh, each day and in after hours for a behind-the-scenes look from the show floor. So all of that is going to be kind of what we're going to be talking about 
in the next uh, couple of shows. We'll be live today and tomorrow. We're having a show on Friday to kind of break it all down and tell you what's going on. Uh, one of the things we're going to be doing is talking to Blackmagic Design about IP-based workflows and AI camera tracking. We'll be talking with NVIDIA. So there's a lot going on in our coverage from SIGGRAPH. This is one of the things we've been most excited about, kind of build our live capabilities, because the industry is changing so much. There are so many new developments happening out there all the time that um, being able to go out and kind of attend a trade show virtually, it's its what we're building this back end to allow you to do. So if you can participate, if you can take a look at the Office Hours website, make sure you're in the Mukana system, right? Because you can ask your questions there after the daily show, and then... Um, also, we're going to be doing some of our HDR 5.1 tests. Alex is in Los Angeles. In fact, he's leaving us now to go try to get ready for his coverage of what we'll be able to see on the show floor. So we're going to be doing some testing to make sure that our HDR 5.1 from the show floor possibilities advance themselves. And we're hoping eventually to get back into this system where you get to ask questions directly to the show floor and... Uh, I know that uh, we're going to have two days of coverage here. Um, it, it should be a lot of fun. So hang in there, pay attention, uh, participate if you can. We're trying to do something kind of new and pretty exciting here, and we're hoping that everybody joins in. That takes us to our special guest for today. Alan Hawks has been with us on Tuesday for the last couple of weeks and is going to be continuing into the future, giving us some insights to 3B, 3D production. Alan does a lot of this, and I get to step back and kind of just toss the ball to Alan, who's going to bring us into the topics for today. Alan, what are you discussing? Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the ideation phase of 3D production. As with anything else, any good any good product or story or production always starts off as an idea. And uh, I'm going to mostly be focused. Recording in progress. Monologue here, but as I'm discussing this, uh, anybody in the panel is willing to kind of interject as I, as I'm going through this. So the first thing is you have an idea. Great. Now we all have ideas, right? How do you decide again which ideas are worth pursuing? Which ideas have teeth? Um, the first thing to realize is ideas are actually rather easy. Uh, execution is hard, right? The uh, To bring an idea to life, it requires dedication and tenacity and hard work and patience and time. Uh, animation in particular is an intensely labor-intensive field. Um, so for, for the sake of this conversation, we're talking mostly about animation, but this actually refers to the process really of bringing any significant idea to reality, right? So if you talk to anybody at a major production studio, most any most anyone will actually have an idea or a story that they want to create, but only a fraction of those ideas are actually going to ever come to fruition um, and not necessarily the best ones. 
So most people have ideas. Uh, what is it that's going to bring that idea to life and how do you go about it? So this is my personal process of ideas, being kind of an idea guy. Um, for most of us, thoughts are actually, um, thoughts and ideas are rather constant. For me, it's kind of like being a cloud of fireflies. You always have these fireflies. You got to decide which one to chase after. It's just kind of living in this cloud of, of ideas and thoughts. Which ones do you pursue? Which ones do you let fly away? Um, for me, one of the first indicators that an idea is worthwhile is the ones that are very intense and or recurring. Like, do you wake up in the middle of the night? Is it intense? I have this idea. I got to get it out, right? Um, I definitely pay attention to those ones. Or if it just grows and it recurs over and over again, then I have to kind of give special attention to that. Um, so the first, first thing I do is write it down. Writing it down kind of clears the noise. It gives it a room to breathe. Um, it allows the idea to, you know, if you have all these ideas, they can create noise in your mind and you have to kind of focus on which idea am I going to pursue? So that's my first step in the process. So what I do is keep an idea journal right here. Okay. I carry this with me almost anywhere that I go. If I don't have this, I have a notes app in my iPhone. And if an idea comes, I just write it down. I have a muse section in my tablet. I'm kind of an old school guy where I have tablets. I like to write things down and just start writing it down. And what'll happen, um, you begin to collect all those uh, resources in one place. And what'll happen if the idea, um, if it has merit, if it has teeth, it will continue to grow. Once I tend to write things down, it clears it out of my head and then it just, it'll either fade or sometimes it grows. It just gives it a, a room to breathe, so to speak. So keeping an idea journal, um, just keeping everything uh, all in one place. That's kind of the first thing I do. Um, giving it room to breathe the idea again, it will either fizzle out or continue to grow. And then if it grows and the idea won't leave you, um, how do you take it to the next level? You have to decide, is this my muse? Is this the story that I want to tell? Is this the product that I personally want to create? Um, and you have to decide how much you really want to create this. And if you're the one to tell it, right? You have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And ask yourself, how strongly does it resonate? And all this is actually getting to the point is of, of what am I willing to endure? This is my question that I usually get to. What am I willing to endure to bring this idea to life, right? Most anybody can imagine the success of the idea completed, but not many people imagine what's involved in actually create it, creating it. This is an insanely labor-intensive process. It requires 
um, tremendous amount of dedication to actually see it through. By the time you get through with this project, you're probably never going to want to see it again, to be honest. It's like, ah. So you have to love it and you have to be willing to ask yourself, what am I personally willing to endure to bring this idea to life? So uh, once you do that um, and you know it's yours and you're really ready to move on, you have to decide what resources, what capital, uh, what um, what will it take to actually bring this to fruition? And if it's something that you personally must do, you're going to be in charge of requiring the resources and capital to make it happen. In terms of 3D and animation, this is a very labor-intensive process that requires many different disciplines, of which we will be covering in the months ahead, step-by-step. Uh, um, so you have to be honest with yourself about what it's going to take and what you're, what's going to be involved with acquiring the necessary resources and capital to make it happen. Um, it takes equipment, it takes time, talent, it takes experience, it takes infrastructure, it takes connections, it takes political capital. Of course, money can buy all these things if you can get the investment or have the money. But money alone, in my experience, um, it won't make the idea worth pursuing and can actually dilute focus if you have too much means and money to go in too many directions. So, um, and the next thing to ask yourself is, is now the time? Is now the time to actually make this happen? Is the answer no, or is it just not yet? In my experience, many ideas require years, actually, to marinate. You got to let it sit. I really wish Alice was, Alex was with us this hour, because if anybody is an idea guy, it's Alex. Alex has I'm a... I'm here. I, did, I didn't leave. I didn't leave. Oh, <laughs> you're here. back, back in while you were... You snuck back yeah, in. Yeah. I thought you left. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, you yeah, go, Alex. Yeah. No, I was just trying to fix the camera. Yeah. Alex is an um, idea you guy. Know, if, if anybody has a ton of ideas, it's Alex. And I don't know how he juggles so many things, some of which he lets marinate for 10 years. I'll hear about an idea and it comes to fruition a decade later, right? Alan, I can't tell you how much everything you have just said resonates with my entire experience of the business. I'm going to turn over to Alex in just a second. But I remember the day that I realized your first point, that ideas are essentially worthless it is only the implementation of ideas that actually drive any kind of financial benefit and that that is the hard work of making an idea drive something that becomes self-sustaining because it actually makes money for people. I'm 100% on board with everything you said here so far, but Alex, take it away. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of come from the the um, the opinion that you can do anything in the world that you can structure. So anything you can build a structure for, you can do it. Um, I was once asked by someone who had a lot of money how much it would cost to do a live stream from the moon. And I said, $20 billion in 10 years. Like, that's what it takes me to do the structure. <laughs> like, you know, and they said, to put a person on the moon? I'm like, no, 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 just to put a camera on the moon. So anyway, so the, um, uh, but but I think that the, uh, the the issue the reason i say that is that there's nothing if someone comes to me and says can we do this the answer is always yes i can do that but it's just how much is it going to cost and what are the what are logistics and what do we have to start and how much time do we have and all those other bits and pieces the one thing about ideation though or, or, or when we're thinking about ideas is that i try to keep 
logistics out of my mind while I'm thinking about the idea. I try to think about, I find that, you know, logistics have to be applied very quickly after that. But the first thing I have to do is figure out what I want to do. You know, so what, you know, and, and the other thing is, is to, to look at what has been done before that's similar and just make decisions about what I like and what I don't like about those things and make sure that it's not based on, um, it's not based on limitations that were part of the past. So we, we do a lot of things that are based on limitations that we had in the past. So for instance, we were talking about um, meetings. The reason that we do, you know, in office hours, we just start off with Q and A because we have a lot of faith that we're going to have great questions. When uh, other people do meetings, they usually talk for 45 minutes and then they open Q and A for 15 minutes. Why do they do that? Is because they're afraid of people asking questions. They're afraid they'll get the wrong questions. They won't, they won't get enough questions that people will talk too long if they open the mic. If they, you know, there's all these structures. And that's a good example of, of basing it on the limitations of what you have, you know, and you're basing it instead of basing it on what is the best result, you know, so you always want to be kind of when you're thinking about ideas or when I'm thinking about ideas, I'm always trying to think about what would produce the best result. And then how do I have logistics uh, support that? You know, how do you have the logistics support the idea as opposed to uh, having the idea, and sometimes to to Alan's point, I'll have ideas that are just not possible. Like, you know, that what we're doing here, is what it was very much what I wanted pixel core to look like when I built it. But this kind of video was not available. You know, these kind of discussions were not available. And so, so I think that the, um, in live streaming, you know, it was very expensive to do more than a postage stamp. So in many times, you know, I think of things and then I set them down going, well, the, the information, the, the logistics in, in this case, time and all the technology around it isn't mature yet. So I'm just going to set this one on a shelf. <laughs> you know, and so, and then I'm going to work on the ones that can actually be done today. Um, and so I think that that is um, a big piece of it. The other thing for me that's really important about um, I coming up with ideas is that I, um, I fiddle with them. So I don't just uh, try to come up with an idea and then, and, and have it completely form itself in my head. I want to have an idea like I have I have ideas around how we cover events. That's why we're down here covering an event is we're fiddling with the idea. We're not done with the idea. We're we're, we're tooling with what makes this work and we're figuring, oh, I need this other little thing or, oh, it'd be really nice. And you don't see that until you've done it. And, you know, and so you want to try to figure out ways to, you know, for me, the ideation process and the and the doing process are kind of inter intertwined. You know, I'll think of something and then I'll do little tests with it or I'll. I'll fiddle with something to see if I can't, um, you know, w understand the idea more effectively. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we learn. Like there's, uh, there's all kind of Mukana, which is what we do our Q and a and our panel view and everything else is a very organic thing that we go, Oh, right. You know, Oh, like, Oh, that would be, that'd be really nice. Or it'd be really nice to have this little, this little bit. And so those are the things that we, um, that we are constantly doing to, um, you know, dance with, uh, with what's going on in, in reality. Alan, did you want to respond and add anything? No, only to say that I'm so glad Alex was here because again, if anybody understands ideas and execution and you know what is involved with bringing something uh, to fruition from an idea and juggling many, many, many ideas, Alex is an idea guy. And if I, I'm always blown away by what he's able to accomplish. So, um, so I'm, I'm glad you contributed to that discussion. So. 
I agree with that, but he's also an implementation guy, which we have seen for for this entire office hours exper- experiment. And you get a sense of the authenticity of I haven't just thought this up, but I've actually had to go out in the field and make it happen. And it's that unending list of little things that need to be checked off the checklist before you actually get decent quality. And even once you get decent quality the first time, going back to the checklist and and identifying and finding and tweaking the pieces that will actually improve the quality of the eventual process is kind of never ending. I mean, I don't I don't know if anybody has done a perfect show yet, even if the run list and everything goes well. In the post meetings that I've been in, there's always something like this part of comms in the background or this title was not to my absolute standard. So you never finish trying to make things better. And Alex, can you talk a little bit about that iteration process, how you look at identifying what is important to work on for the next stage so that you continue to make progress? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really important is that you have to be a pragmatic perfectionist. I know that sounds like those are those are things that are, um, those sound like opposites, but they're not. In the sense that you have a vision of what you're trying to produce and you're constantly going towards that vision and it is this perfect thing that you're and you're not willing to just go well this is the way we're doing it now you're not willing to give up on that vision but at the same time you're like but this is what i can do today and this is how this and you have to forgive that not everything's going to be perfect that my my color my my white balance is not going to be perfect today you have to forgive that and go well i'm going to keep on doing it i'm not going to stop because what's really easy is to never have something come out of the pipe because it has to be perfect. So if you're a perfectionist, if you're a idealistic perfectionist, you'll do one of two things. You'll either uh, never get it out the door. Um, you'll you'll fiddle with it and play with it in private and work on stuff. And, and we've all had those projects that just never get out the door because you're just, you just want it. And oftentimes the things that don't get out the door are the things that you feel are the most important because, you know, there's a, there's kind of a value that you've created to that that makes it very hard to move forward. And so, so at, at, so part of it is, is that if you're this idealistic perfectionist, you'll either do that or you'll do something and immediately hate it, which is a very common thing for artists, <laughs> especially me. Like I, I rarely want to talk about anything in the past. Like, you know, like I'm, you know, a week ago is like, okay, that was what a week ago. And now we're doing something, you know, where I'm going to keep moving forward. So, but the, but so, and then you'll stop doing, the, the key is not to just look at it. It didn't work and stop working on it. That's another thing that's a really tempting thing to do. So a pragmatic perfectionist is really someone who is, was, is never satisfied but okay with where 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 you're at you know, at the same time um and that's a really you know that's a really uh, it's a balance that you have to have you know and and i and i have to admit that uh, uh you know for me i'm i'm kind of a pragmatic perfectionist about everything <laughs> so so i'm you know like it's not just what we do here it's not what i do at work um you know i i uh I, I, when I'm home, I, you know, I make my wife a latte and I'm trying to build the perfect latte every day. Like every day I pay attention to it. No, no one can talk to me while I'm doing it. Cause I'm trying to figure out the exact weight, the thing, the, where, where the little nozzle goes and how dense the, the bubbles are and all the, but that's how I, but that is like how I do what I, you know, everything I do is, is, and cause I find that to be, it's a very, it's a kind of a more of a Japanese approach to things where you want to have everything be the, you know, the, the thing. And, and you don't have time to do that with everything. Um, but I think that, that I'm always looking for, I find that to make, it makes things interesting to me to do that. But I think that that pragmatic perfectionism is really, really important. It's not a term I 
I've heard anybody else kick around. It's just something I call it. Um, and, uh, but I think that it's a really, really important function because I find that perfectionists, you know, people say, well, perfect is the enemy of, you know, I don't know whether, you know, like, um, uh, the good perfect is the enemy of good. Um, and, and I'm, and, 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 uh, you know, and I, and I always find that good, you know, good enough is the, is the, I, someone said this, I don't remember who it was, but said good enough is the enemy of humanity. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I don't, which, which you're just, so, you know, the thing is, is that it's, it is, um, you know, you're trying to constantly get to an acceptable level and knowing that you're going to keep on what I call it, the other side of this that I, I call it is failing forward. So you're failing forward where you're constantly pushing yourself against something. What's happening is, is as you move forward, uh, your vision of what is possible keeps on evolving. And then you keep on, uh, you keep on adding to it. Now, the key is, is to figure out where do you like for is for, for this show, we have to print it. You know, it has to go out to the world every morning. So, you know, there's pencil there at some point there's pencils down and you're just going to do a show um, and it's going to be as good as you're going to make it. The thing people get caught up in is not having a, a place to do pencils down and then they keep, you know, this is feature creep, right? And so if we, if yeah. we keep on, you know, we, you know, and, and what, what's really hard, you talk to engineers at these, some of these big companies and what's really hard is that the product that we see, they stopped developing years ago, sometimes, you know, or months ago, you know, the features that we saw are a year old to them. They're working on all these other cool features that are coming out in another year. They've already, you know, what you're playing with. And so when you're talking about something not working, they can't tell you like, we fixed, we, 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 we have a new way to do that, but that's not going to come out for six months, you know? And they saw that while they were developing it, but they had to just, you know, there's a point three months before they released it that they can't, you know, to get it stable, they have to stop working on it. So they go, okay, well, that's the feature set. And we know what we want to do next, but we can't do that now because otherwise we'll never ship, you know? And so those are the things that get really hard, but you don't, you don't want to ever, I think that the, the, the key is never to give up and just say, well, that's as good as it can be. It's not necessarily as good as it can be. Um, I think we've proven that. I mean, people don't have, people don't expect windows like what we see here they're like well it's good enough if i have a webcam and a, in my mic on my laptop and stuff like that and we push a little harder here and it i think it's made a huge difference and we keep on making it you know attempting to make it better plus the lessons we learned are practical lessons i mean i can't tell you the number of things that i've run into i said that's ah, not good enough for what i'm trying to do and then you myelinate that and suddenly you're able to do that very easily as easily as you did it less effectively. You can right. do it now more effectively because you're getting those reps in. Um, the other thing for me that I, it, it just interesting, you sparked this thought. I go back occasionally and look at my old work from maybe three years ago or five years ago, and I'm looking for two things. First of all, I'm looking at for that point where, you know, that wasn't bad. That thing I did five years ago, it's not as good as I can do it now, but I can see that I had learned this lesson because my type was better or the color management was better or something. And it just reinforced forces for me that I should keep doing what I learned to do at that point in the history and carry that forward. The other thing I'm constantly looking for is everything in the past should be a little less than I would expect it to be now because I want to continue to evolve and get better. And that takes this repetition. It takes looking at your work, judging how you're progressing and continuing push to move a little forward. Uh, this is just fascinating stuff. Great discussion today. We do have questions coming in, and don't forget, you can add more questions at this point if you want for uh, Ellen and everybody else here. But let's hop into our first question, Mitch. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. 
Jack asks, how many uh, or how much does publication platform and hardware and software capabilities play into the genesis of concepts and the ideation phase? Alan, you want to take a swing at this? Yeah, in my experience, that doesn't really come in until the end. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about the, the ideation phase is really about filtering out which ideas you're going to bring about. And that in itself is a cumbersome, laborious, self-evaluatory process, really. you got to do some soul searching and say, is this worth bringing about? It's a lot of work. Um, and, and usually, I think that's a question probably geared for later on because that question is, once you have the clear idea, once you have the capital, once you have the funding, once you're ready to move forward, uh, that's when you really start to say, okay, well, what software are we going to use? So, Alex? I do think that sometimes I, I, I find that I, with, with software, I think that what it, where it plays into it is what software am I using to think about those ideas. So like, for instance, lists of things I do in Apple Notes, um, I'm drawing in Keynote. Um, so in Keynote, I will be, uh, uh, you know, drawing ideas oftentimes in there. Um, other people have Evernote. I was talking to someone yesterday, they were using Evernote to do that. So it just depends on what you're, but there are tools that you might use um, to think about those ideas and to throw those ideas in. They may not be the software that you end up delivering in, um, but there's, you know, there's some really interesting software out there that, to help you kind of play with the ideas. Courtney? Well, I think it, it has to do, it can have, depending upon uh, the uh, platform that you're going to be showing this on, whether it's going to be a, uh, you know, a film that's going to make the uh, uh, circuit on um, the uh, award circuit, you know, uh, whether it's just a short animated film or a 3D film. If it's a, a 3D, you know, aimed at a, at a television show or a theatrical release, if you're writing a, a dramatic narrative and you're going to animate it, uh, having something that's marketable in uh, the ancillary markets is important to getting it financed these days. You know, if you look at any of the, you know, television shows like Transformers or any of the animated uh, TV series, they're all based on toys. They have something that can be marketed besides the show itself. So a lot of them are dependent on having characters that can lend themselves to uh, a toy of some sort or some other uh, source of, of uh, ancillary marketing, T-shirts, toys, et cetera. So that's where a lot of the money comes from. And if you have something that you think of off the bat that could be easily marketed, like uh, you know Transformers, where they have a lot of mechanical toys that can be uh, played with in a variety of ways. It's the perfect uh, platform to get it financed because you can get Mattel or some type of toy company behind you to finance the production of your 3D production and uh, get it off the ground. And once it's off the ground and into ancillary markets, you can have a hit on your hands. So as far as, you know, like... Uh, even 2D animation like uh, South Park, you know, they never thought they were going to animate that with just cut cutouts of uh, of construction paper to begin with. But then they moved to a digital platform and it's had a life of its own for a large number of years. Uh, but and that doesn't really survive on too much ancillary marketing. I don't know if there are any South Park toys. I guess there are some lots of T-shirts and so on. But I, <laughs> but I imagine they they have uh a lot of income from other than the storyline itself. So the storyline and the characters have to be likable and they have to be marketable other than in the story. 
And I'm funny because what, what hit me as a thought early in my career was I can follow what the market wants. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we're in this for business purposes. And if I go, oh, AI is hot, I need to figure out something in AI because that's going to be coming up. So I need to spend all my time thinking about doing something in that respect. I had a circumstance early in my career where I got pinged by one of the large uh, meat processing things in my city, and they wanted me to come in and do some videos. And I kind of took a look at it, but I went, you know, sometimes I'm not really sure if I want to build this into a big part of my career. I, I have no problem with their product and the rest of that, but do I really want to be on slaughterhouse lines shooting, you know, four days a month? And is that going to make me fulfilled as somebody who wants to create content? And my answer for myself was no. Again, I don't have a problem with the product, and I understand that it feeds a lot of people and the rest of that. And this was a big globally shipping operation, and so it could have been a nice, solid income stream for the rest of my career, but it wasn't really where my heart was. So for me, judging the possibilities for this purely based on is there a publication platform and is there money in the back end and should I go in this direction because it's easier because everybody's looking for this hot idea turned out to be not as satisfying as finding something that kind of fit my core values more closely even if I wasn't sure about the publication platforms and, and the software and the rest of that. I feel felt like the core idea, if it was a solid idea and really had value in the world, I could fit it around different distribution platforms and things like that. That's how I thought about it. I don't know if anybody else does the same thing, but I, I'm happy I made the choices that I made. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asked, what software do you use for 3D production? Uh, Alan, what are, you, what are you into these days? It really depends, you know. This is actually kind of a frustrating subject. I keep hoping the market will kind of stabilize into, you know, we have Photoshop. Photoshop does is the master of image editing. It's kind of the the settled king, right? Uh, there really is no king in, in the 3D world. And I tend, and 3D is very, very complicated subject. All the applications are very different and they're hard to master. And depending on what clients you have and depending on what project is, you know, it's always changing. I will tell you that the most common things I use, some by choice, some by necessity, are Maya, um, uh, mostly Maya, Moto, um, sometimes Cinema 4D. Uh, but yeah, it really just kind of depends on any number of factors. So, Alan, if a young person were to come up to you today and say, I'm, I'd like to get into this, what would you recommend as their starter software? Is it Blender or something? You know, is there something that kind of, this will teach you the basic concepts overall? Yeah, well, the basic concepts, concepts principle is important there because there are things that are applicable from, for between all 3D software applications where if you learn one, it'll be applicable to another. But at the same time, all 3D applications do things very differently and it takes a long time to get familiar. You become invested with it and how it works. And it's, they call it the valley of pain when you get really fluent in one application <laughs> and then you have to go to another one. And it's like, I don't, you know, I have to unlearn everything I learned and, and, and redevelop these motor skills. So it's very I've vacationed in the valley of pain quite often in my career. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I've been there too. <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho, ho. 
Yeah, let's move yeah, to the so, next but, but oh, to answer, go ahead, to answer your question really quick, though, I would recommend it, Blender is great because it's free. It's it's open source, right? Um, and it'll teach you the basics. And it's a great way for place to people place for people to start. But Maya, Maya is still, I don't know why, but it's still kind of the indisputable king. Uh, mo- most studios still use Maya and or a lot of them use Cinema 4D, uh, especially in the advertising world, but in visual effects, still Maya. I think it's because they're very prominent in s- schools. They have a huge installed user base, and they have a free educational version, which a lot of software does. So, um, But it's it's the learning curve is a brick wall. So I would say probably start with Blender, um, and then as soon as you can switch over to either Maya or Cinema 4D or something that's more commonly used in the industry. There you go. Next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada asks, animators used to need an instinctive awareness of how things move. Has the embedded physics in today's software removed that need to understand how things move? So, Alan, that's interesting. Do the puppeteering things that are built in mean you don't have to know as much, or do you still have to have that basic grounding and mechanics and body? Well, you know, this is changing. I'm I'm actually looking a lot of what's coming out on AI. I'm really, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what it has in store. I will say um, the people that master the actual skills of of knowing how things move you're always going to need to know that to some level and you're always going to be at an advantage but to the effects that the software does simulations and the dynamics are calculated for you um and to the extent that ai is now coming into place where people can just take a, a video and ai will analyze the video and even create a character a rigged character animated on top of that video and 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 really do a pretty good job getting you where you need to be and then you just kind of need to go in and finesse it um i would say it's indisputable that it's always best to have the talent and to have those skills but the software is taking out that those i would say the the middleman or the lower level skills like what what um you know somebody newer to the industry would be would be handling do you think there's ever a chance we'll get a 3D version of uh, ChatGPT or or Midjourney or something like that 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 manages to create code for movements off of uh, a voice prompt or a text prompt or something? You know, have this have this character run around the stadium track three times and jump after seven, twelve, and fifteen minutes. Yeah, these large language models in in AI. I'm just thinking about all the potential applications. It's only a matter of time before before it's actually you can use text prompts to to direct a rig on what to do. Um, I I absolutely see it. I don't know how long it'll take, but um, AI is going to be a big big deal. <laughs> Well, as a rote mechanical time saver, I can't, I can't imagine a technology has more potential to be able to codify things that you do repetitively, like make the character happy, and maybe you've built in a you know set of behaviors for facial construction that do that. It, it, yeah, kind of on a on a on a good note, I mean, the the things that AI is handling are the things that's like, well, I don't really want to have to handle that, you know, and it, and it's enabling you to do a lot more with a lot less and 
a lot less resources. And from a storytelling and an independent, you know, entrepreneurial mindset, I'm like, this is fantastic. It's like, I have these tools that I never had before. Uh, but it's, it's from a labor and a, a disruptive technology position, you know, that that's the other side of it. And that, well, it's not as labor intensive, so I don't use many people and what are they going to do for jobs? Yeah. Well, they were, we're all struggling with this change. It's going to be huge. Courtney, you had some thoughts on this? Yeah, Alan covered a lot of it. The, there are uh, physics sims that are built into a lot of 3D animation these days. It'll handle things like cloth movement of, uh, you know, the wardrobe or uh, water movement, uh, physics behaviors of, you know, things bouncing, destruction where things are you know, blown up or knocked down that will handle the physics of where all the little pieces land and how they bounce and so on. So that the animator doesn't really have to deal with any of that as they did in the past. Uh, a lot of times in the old old school animators used to actually, you know, to get smooth movement if they weren't knowledgeable in just how people move and, and the dynamics of uh, motion, uh, human motion, you know, they would rotoscope. They'd shoot live actors. Disney used to do this, shoot live actors, and then just rotoscope their movements and then animate over the top of uh, that rotoscoped movement. These days, uh, I guess you could have AI uh, just use markers or do image capture, you know, movement capture, and uh, capture the movement like they did on uh, Avatar uh, to get uh, performance capture. Uh, of all the actors in a 3D set and then just animate over the top of that so that the rigs are animated based on the capture of the performance and witness marks on the actors. So it's getting easier in that respect to get the movement in, uh, whereas the character development with the look of the characters, that's pretty much all on the animator these days. So there are room for a few more questions in today's session. If you uh, want to toss them in, go ahead. If not, we'll end a little early, and that's fine. Well, as long as we cover everything everybody's interested in, it's a show. So next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you handle 3D production clients who don't know what they need? If we answer this today, I can make everybody a billion dollars in the next coming five years. How do you handle question, clients who have no clue what they're asking for. Alan, what's your strategy? I'm not sure if you heard my laugh while somebody else was talking. That's what I was <laughs> laughing at when I read when I read that question. Um, well, it is a challenging subject, but it ultimately settles on this. Clients pay for the privilege of being right in this industry. And as long as they pay for the privilege, uh, we will service the account to no end. Um, I've noticed I serve a, different types of clients. Uh, there's agency clients versus um, sometimes we work directly with um, a producer of a product who mostly leaves the creative to us. In other words, we get the final green light and whatnot. So it's mostly for for some places, it's more of a creative process. And for some, it's more of just a production process. So we're able, when we're able to refine the variables of the creative and the client going off on tangents out of it, we're able to turn things around very quickly, templatize things, really develop a very efficient production pipeline and do a lot for a reasonable budget. The minute you start servicing these agency accounts, it's like they're they're the wild card, they're the variable. You have no idea. Um, 
uh, and in the 3D production pipeline is a it's a stack of dominoes. You'll hear me say that often. If you if you make a it's not an organic process where if you make a change that should have been done in storyboarding and now you're making the changes when we're in lighting, all those dominoes come crashing down. Mm-hmm. And and the only way you're going to be able to, you know, that's a recipe for disaster right there. So you have to communicate with these, especially agency clients in particular. And that's one of the reasons agency budgets tend to be exponentially higher because they pay for the privilege. But even with that, uh, they there has to be a high degree of collaboration between production and creatives. You need a median mediator in there to kind of negotiate. It's it's very challenging. So. Yeah, actually, one of the most interesting guests we've had, we've had a lot of interesting guests, but the video game uh, person who talked us through their pres- their prep for that and had a whole series of, at this point, here's the hierarchy of what needs to be close to done, and here's what in our early stages can be just wild sketch, don't worry about it, but marching through that chart so that you knew that, if you don't do something in phase one and get it locked in enough, it's going to cost you an awful lot and paid and and phase four or th- phase three, which is kind of what you're talking about. I mean, the the more you make good decisions along the path, the smoother the path goes. If you don't know that you should really pay attention to designing the logo and you've got the logo in 10,000 things later, it's a real hassle to go fix it then as opposed to getting it right in the first place. Is that the kind of thing you see? And, and what kind of things do people make mistakes on in that area? Um, well, the, the, just so you know, the process that we're going to be covering is really detailing the pipeline for this specific oh, reason. It's, it's listing out every domino. We're going to be covering it, every, I think, uh, every month, right? We're going to be covering a different subject in that pipeline. And you'll really get to understand why each domino is so important. Um, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but a thought came as you were asking it. Uh, in in like a Pixar production pipeline, this is like a closed system. This is where everybody everybody in Pixar knows the process and the people that are writing the story are actually going to be producing it. So this is like an idealized system. And the minute you bring an external creative who wants to organically, you know, just, just kind of design on the fly, that is not compatible at all. With oh, that's interesting. Person. So there's hierarchical kind of rigidity up and down different kinds of shops. Yeah, you you have to you have to work out this pipeline we're going to be reviewing is the only way to effect, uh, efficiently work it out. If you don't work it out in the in this linear process that we're going to be talking about, uh, the the budget will expose explode and or the results will be deeply compromised. So, and that's again, this question is kind of opening. It's like feeling a conversation. But uh, how do you handle three D production clients who don't know what they need? Wow, um, you you have to micromanage every step of the way and communicate flawlessly and 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 get them to fall into the system. I have an analogy. I have a really good analogy. What Excellent. happens What happens if you're gonna buy a home, right? When you're gonna buy and build a home, let's say you're gonna build a home. 
Um, do you make a blueprint change when you're in framing or drywall? No, <laughs> you don't. And if you do, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And this is an analogy I use in clients say, if you don't follow this, you have to sign off, sign off at this stage, sign off at this stage. And, and once you sign off, if you go back to that pre-production phase, and make a change, it's going to cost the same way it would cost you to go back to blueprint when you're in, in drywall or framing or whatever, right? So it's kind of Yeah, you didn't never want to bring the bulldozers out once you've got the framing done. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> the foundation should have been specified, and you should know where all the pipe stems are coming up, and they, they have to stay there. Next question. Um, Alan, speaking of blueprints, what do you use for previs? artists well do you have sketchup <laughs> or, tools or though that you use for communicating your thoughts to somebody do you use any quick 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 I'm idea i'm a terrible sketch artist i don't i don't share my sketches with anybody um for, for if i'm doing my own previs i tend to use i tend to go to well now i'm going to mid journey a lot i'm learning how to direct ai quite a bit um i i use most of my sketches i keep to myself and if i do need to do any previs on my own i'll use and I'll rely on my production and 3D skills to come up with something visually appealing. Uh, but for the most part, um, I would rely on people who specialize and or software that specialize in previs. So I have to thank Alex for that. Alex has been transformative for me because I am a terrible person for drawing as well. But, you know, he'll pull up the telestrator and it's just blobs and boxes and maybe the line doesn't curve right or whatever. But if the idea comes across... I think he's found that's more important than looking like I can draw in my case. So, yeah, I, th that's been a little bit inspirational. Sometimes you just have to get the idea across and you do it as best you can. Let's you know, go to the... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just thinking previs is actually a skill. Um, it When I think of what it's, you know, people say, oh, Alan, you're such a good artist or so-and-so, you're such a good artist. I can draw what I see. I'm a rendering artist. If I see something, I can draw it beautifully. But to come up with an idea out of your head and be able to, you know, sketch it down, that's a very specific skill set. And there's specific training. Like I teach at Academy of Art, we have previs and uh, departments, and it's it's insane what these people go through in terms of of training. Um, so either you need to get the right talent. Um, and or increasingly, you can rely on AI to come up with previs. But um, coming up with ideas, like even if you have the most brilliant idea, if you're not the kind of artist that can translate it into a visual, um, you, you need to either rely on software and or hire people that specialize in that specific niche. And maybe that's a brain function. I'm thinking of all the sculptors who say, you know, well, all I do, it's in there. I just take away the stuff that's not supposed to be there. And you go, well, yeah, that may be working your brain for 99.99999% of the population. There's no way in the world you can do that. So who knows? Uh, Courtney, you had a thought? Yeah, I was going to actually ask Alan. I know there's uh, storyboarding software that just basically organizes the panels and uh, let you draw as an artist, draw into the storyboard panel. So one by one, keep it organized. But is there a previs software that lets you take 3D representations of the characters in the scene and place them in an environment and then pick camera angles based on, and so it'll position, you know, even if it does just stills to render into a storyboard, 
um, position the characters to show where the camera is going to be, how the camera is going to move, uh, whether, you know, this is this a close-up of this character, is this an over-the-shoulder of this character, is this a wide shot where we see a lot of action uh, in the background? Is there software that will take uh, basically in a 3D environment and render uh, storyboards uh, by placing it and placing the camera to give you different points of view to storyboard how it's actually going to be animated? You you can do that. Most of what you were describing, though, is more visual development than previs. So, for for storyboarding in particular, you can go the old school route. In my experience, nothing can replace just an excellent storyboard artist and actually somebody who's trained in that skill in order to generate those those sketches for you quickly and manipulate them quickly. Um, because by the time you get, you can, if you don't have a good storyboard artist and you don't have very strong sketching skill, there's software. I mean, I don't personally use it. Most 3D software, you can get, you know, pre-rigged assets, pre-rigged characters, you know, just like some, some generic characters and whatnot. And you can, you can render in like tune mode or just a very simplified render mode in order to generate storyboards, um, I don't know that I would recommend any particular software other than to say it's done in almost the same 3D software that you would use for production. It's just a much more simplified version of what you would create. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asked, how long does it take to create a 60 to 90 second 2D or 3D image? So just pick uh, an average quality level because I know there's so much variability in that. Uh, how long is the piece of string? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it 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 really depends. Um, it, it depends on your resources. It depends on the talent. I think the question's a little too open ended, but I will say that sixty and ninety second two D or three D animation is significant and will require significant time and resources to produce something worthwhile. So. There you go. That's I think that's fair. Uh, Courtney, you had a thought on this? Yeah, and inter interesting along that line is uh, it, it really depends on whether or not, you know, because uh, you have things to deal with uh, if you're doing an animated story. You know, you have to record the audio first, and then you have to animate the uh, animation to the audio, and then a lot of times they'll send that off to uh you know korea or someplace where uh it's cheaper to do in between and ink and paint or digital ink and paint uh and then you're going to get you know it could take six months to get that back but an interesting there's an interesting if you look at south park they have a six day production schedule from concept to delivery uh and for a half hour animated show that's pretty much unprecedented and there's a uh, i uh documentary i think it's available on netflix called uh, making of south park six days to air and it's interesting because it, it shows you it outlines how they produce that show because it's topical and has to get to air within six days and it's animated thankfully they're doing you know just kind of cut out type of animation and it's all done in uh, software these days so they don't have to send it off to do uh, ink and paint in betweens it's all done with a computer but it's amazing that it has that short a production schedule from concept and writing the script to delivery in six days. That's pretty unheard of. Mitchell? 
I've had clients ask me questions like this, um, and sometimes they just don't know. They have no idea, but they, they do know what their pocketbook will support. Uh, so I always have a scare you number uh, in the back of my head. And if a client was, that didn't know what they were asking for said, well, what's it going to cost to do a 60-second animation? I usually go, you know, about 5000 a second, you know, or whatever, I, just a number in your head that's going to get them into the right frame of mind to receive a, a final um, quote for the project because you got to get over that hump. Otherwise, you're just going to waste your time with them. I have a similar thing. I'd, I'd, I'd say, well, back in the 1970s, there used to be this figure people tossed around $1,000 a finished minute for video production. That's 1970. Figure it out from there. <laughs> if they just go and do inflation from there, you end up with a pretty robust budget. All these tricks. Alan, you had a thought? Yes, actually, that's a really good point Mitchell brought up. Um, I, I I float around the idea just to get people in the right frame of reference. Um, you're, for anything worthwhile of a production quality, you're starting about $3,000 a second. Uh, and, and that first second is insanely expensive because you have to produce all the assets for that first second. All right. The longer it is, kind of it kind of uh, spreads out. Economies of scale. Yeah. Yeah. Economies of scale. Let's go to the next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. What part does the desire to realize an idea motivate learning or learning yeah, learning tools? Conversely, what are examples of mastering tools opening up ranges of concepts that contribute to greater creativity? Hmm, this is an interesting question, Alan. Did it resonate for you? I'm trying to parse that one, sorry. Um what I guess I of kind of took it as do the tools determine what you can do in terms of realization of ideas or uh, do the concepts kind of breed new tools? It's symbiotic, right? Um, yeah. You, you know, <laughs> if you look in, at the 3D production pipeline, like like what's coming out, I think we take for granted that pretty much anything is possible now pretty much anything like you go back to what Pixar was creating when they were when they were born like the tin toy go watch tin toy and see what was possible then and they were doing pulling the best of the best to try to actually make that animation um you know so now I think the tools are there as long as you have the budget and the resources nothing is really impossible anymore Courtney have a quick thought yeah, I was, you mentioned earlier uh, using Midjourney to uh, to kind of brainstorm uh, to come up with a character or something. Just starting with a description of you know what does this this character you know how tall is he? What does he look like? Is it male, female? You know what what era, et cetera? And letting Midjourney generate a, a variety of looks for you. Do you use Midjourney to to brainstorm and look for ideas? I do increasingly. I, I'm becoming a bit of a mid-journey addict. When Alex actually was the one who turned me on to it, um, he's the one who showed me about. <laughs> I told I told the panel here. I had very mixed reaction, and now I'm using it all the time uh, because, again, if you if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a director or an entrepreneur or somebody trying to create a vision, it's an insanely good, great, powerful tool. Um, and I find myself. Um, relying on it more and more and it's great for brainstorming and often accelerates my ideas more more than diminish them so next question 
Next one from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. In software development, tool improvements are sometimes significant enough cause me to step back and restart the ideation iteration cycle. Do you experience this in media production as well? Your thoughts? E- yes, and I think I have an example of that if I'm understanding the question correctly. In software development, tool improvements are sometimes significant enough to cause to step back and restart the idea. Um, I get stuck in this. Uh, it, it, to me, this kind of touches on what Alex was talking about practical or pragmatic perfectionism. Was that the the term he talked about? Um, where, uh, if I'm creating a rig or, or, or producing something, I tend to always, as I'm producing it, I think how it could be made better. And then I tend to want to go back and redo it and redo it and redo it and redo it and make it better and better. But there's a point at which you just have to say, um, I'm done. And I have to, I have to like follow this through because that perfectionist tendency of I could make this better um, will will cripple you in the end. So it just becomes uh, something where you have to internally regulate, use your inner wisdom to figure out um, because you'll you'll get in a, a endless cycle, a loop cycle, and you'll never actually finish anything unless you control that tendency. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA is back. When does it make sense to iterate in a more advanced process and tweak things? What creative changes demand the return to the conceptual tools? We talked about that a little before, but Alan, do you have any additional thoughts about when to move on? Um, yeah, I think we kind of covered that pretty pretty well. It's it's time, it's budget, it's it's you know, if you're a perfectionist then good enough is probably pretty darn good and you have to just learn to let it go so there you go i like the let it go stage you you, you start to get a sense of when is this okay to let go yeah it's it's just fine let's go to the next question gordon lake from los angeles california asked will ai tools bring down the cost of 3d to a point where it'll be hard to make money in 3d Oh, that's always the question of the current era. Alan, it's already hard to make money. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, it, it will bring down the cost. It will raise demands. In some ways, all right, I have an observation here. Um, imagine a client that plays around with MidJourney and or some creative development team that plays around with MidJourney and comes up with some amazing, stunning visuals that would otherwise never have been possible. And otherwise, it's a, it's such a, a MidJourney or whatever, it's such a great um, tool for visualizing and brainstorming. And you're going to come up with something much stronger than you might have had you just relied on google images or something right so the expectations of what you want to create have gone way up but here's the thing to actually generate what you can do in mid-journey to regenerate it and make it possible from the visual effects and 3d realm is much 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 more difficult it's totally different technology and to be able to take that vision and apply it uh, in the 3D and visual effects world is a totally different discipline. And it's actually putting more strain on these artists because it's 
it's a higher quality. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to replicate for the purposes of visual effects and animation and to be able to micromanage and direct the way we want to direct this stuff. What Midjourney is doing, it's very, very difficult to do. So in the short term and until you know these tools are are refined to a degree, it's actually putting more of a burden on on 3D artists because the ideas are bigger and more difficult to create. There you go. Alan, great session. Thank you so much for your commitment to being here today and to being here in the future. We're really looking forward to continuing with you on this journey. I've got some notes. Don't forget, Seagraph starts tonight, our coverage, 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, today, tomorrow, 1 to 3 p.m. Grant Whitehead is hosting the show tonight. I'm hosting the show tomorrow on Wednesday. Office Hours is going to be on the show floor, looking at all the latest in graphics technology. Uh, some things coming up. Grant White, uh, Carl Winkler from Electrosonics is going to be here on Wednesday, so that should be a really exciting show. Playout B, our friend Jonas Dottle will be talking about the latest Playout B 2.0 on Thursday. Um, on Friday, we're going to be looking back at what we're going to be doing tomorrow and uh, tonight. So we're going to be talking about how we covered SIGGRAPH technically and creatively. Our thanks, as always, to all of our producers, everybody who helps by generating questions that drive this show. We couldn't do it without you. Also, the panelists who show up here every day and, and contribute their expertise for the entire group. We appreciate everybody who has done that over the course of the years. We've learned so much. After Hours is 24-7. Don't forget that. Also, don't forget we have traveled in the Pluck Traversal uh, 83,185 miles. That's 133,872 kilometers. That's more than 558 million bananas for scale or 3.3 times around the Earth. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you for watching. Thank you all for showing up. This was a fun day. Yes, indeed. I got to go get to iterating now. Yes, very cool. I'm used to it today. It's not everywhere in the country, <laughs> except where I am. And I'm sorry, I apologize. It's not your fault. The one nice guy's driving the weather. Ask me if I think moving from Phoenix to San Diego was a good idea today. Where's Fat?